At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 362nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, we want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is, I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. In nature, we don't find closed loop systems. We find circular systems where energy and resources are part of a loop, repeating itself endlessly and sustaining those systems. Growing food should be a circular system too, and aquaponics is a perfect example. Aquaponics uses natural cycles where fish feed plants and plants feed fish. Let us teach you how to start your own fish-powered garden in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you'll receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who likes to experiment with bacteria and beverages. We are talking with returning guest Alex Lewin about kombucha and fermented drinks. Alex grew up on the East Coast of the U.S. In his evolving journey on the Earth, he discovered that one of his gifts is his ability to coexist side-by-side with friendly bacteria. While others struggle with it, Alex embraces them. Alex is the author of Real Food Fermentation, Preserving Whole Fresh food with live cultures in your home kitchen through Quarry Publishing and co-author of Kombucha, Kafir, and Beyond through Fair Winds Publishing. Alex, we got to meet you a week or so back in episode 358. Welcome back to the show today. Are you ready to rock kombucha? I'm ready, Greg. So kombucha, how did you get to it? The first time I saw kombucha was in my cousin's house in Northern California. I was a little worried about it. <laughs> yeah, it looked like something that had gone wrong. Wrong. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not something that looks like something we would want to eat necessarily. And that must have been in like 2000 or something. I didn't know what it was and I tasted it and I said, oh, that's interesting. And then I didn't give it much more thought for a while. Mm-hmm. And the next time I had it, I don't remember exactly when it was. I'm trying to think what grabbed me about it. Mm-hmm. It seemed to answer a bunch of questions that needed answering, like what can people drink if they don't want to drink soda or juice or other things that have too much sugar in them? What can people do about the growing epidemic of digestive problems? which I think we talked about a little bit last week. Yes. How can people make things at home rather than having to buy them? And plus my fascination with doing weird food experiments on my counter. I think it checked all those boxes 
for me. And so that's what got me interested and held my attention. And it's one of the things that I've made more or less consistently for many years with a few breaks. Mm -hmm. It's held my attention. So what is it? What is it? Well, the easiest way I can explain it is it's a mild drinking vinegar made out of sweet tea. Most vinegars we think of are made out of like wine vinegar is common or apple cider vinegar or malt vinegar is made out of beer, give or take. Then there's white vinegar that's just made out of sugar water. Uh Kombucha is a vinegar that's made out of tea with sugar in it. And there's some, say, magic. There's some biochemistry that, that goes on that is not well understood. The main thing that goes on when making vinegar is that sugar gets transformed into alcohol and then that gets transformed into acid. Acetic acid is the key ingredient in vinegar. Along the way, there are other things that are made in smaller amounts that give vinegar its particular character. And when you start with tea, there are a lot of very interesting reactions that happen that that get us to kombucha. And unlike a lot of vinegars, when you're making, say, red wine vinegar, you let it go all the way until it's fully vinegar and there's no residual sugar. You wouldn't necessarily want to drink a whole bottle of it though, and it wouldn't be good for your teeth or your esophagus or probably your stomach either. With kombucha, we stop before it's completely vinegar. Mm -hmm. It's also more dilute than vinegars we would typically use for cooking. There are a lot of very interesting compounds made in small amounts that have a lot of health benefits, apparently. That doesn't sort of capture why people are fascinated with it, but that's part of it. And the floaty thing, for anyone who's seen kombucha being made, there's this white thing floating on top of it that looks like a calamari, you know, a squid or something, or maybe looks like a mushroom. Uh (laughs) That's common to other vinegars. Other vinegars have a floaty thing in them also. Most people don't think very much about vinegar, and so a lot of people don't make vinegar at home. It's so easy to get it. So why would we do this? So there are a couple of questions like, why would we drink it? And then why would we make it at home versus buying it? Why would we drink it? Well, again, if I make ironclad health claims and somebody's going to jump on me and say, well, you know, where are the scientific studies you have to back that up? And I'm going to say, well, there aren't a lot of them because until recently there was no money in kombucha. So there was no money to fund research. And it's not necessarily a sinister conspiracy. It's just people fund research for the things that make money these days. So generally speaking, why would we drink it? I do think it helps my digestion. It's hard for me to say for sure in my case, because I'm always playing with my diet and my exercise routine and my sleep and all that. So if I change five things and I feel better, it's hard for me to say which one of them it is. Uh I have talked to a lot of people who I trust a lot, including my mom and one of my best friends from high school, who say that when they started drinking kombucha, their acid reflux went away, for instance. So that's one thing. I feel quite sure that it helps some people with some kinds of digestive problems. Mm-hmm. It's a good source of natural vitamin B, as are many fermented foods and beverages. It's a great substitute for other drinks that people might be drinking, like I mentioned soda and juice. It has a lot less sugar than soda and juice, has a lot more enzymes. It's quite tasty, that's for sure. And it's quite tasty, yeah. I mean, there's the fun part. It's tasty, and often people are creative about how they brew it. Like, I've been making strawberry ginger cayenne kombucha, and I share it with people, and they like it. And you can make it with all sorts of medicinal 
type things like turmeric, make it with, you know, whatever you want. You can make it out of other things too. Like you can make kombucha out of coffee instead of tea. And then it's still kind of kombucha, but it's still a little bit different. Cool. That's why we drink it. And then why we'd make it rather than buying it is, first of all, you can make it for about a tenth of the price Mm -hmm. using the same organic tea and organic sugar. Organic tea is important, by the way, rather than conventional tea. It's even more important than the case of tea because conventional tea tends to have high levels of fluoride in it. And if you're drinking it on a very regular basis, the fluoride can add up and cause problems. Organic tea tends to have less. You know, the tea plant is a sponge for various kinds of minerals, not all of which we want. We make it because, you know, it costs maybe a tenth as much. And also we get to play with the flavorings we want. And also several years ago, there was a regulatory problem where some kombucha was taken off the shelf and the federal authorities measured the alcohol level in the kombucha. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. How much alcohol is in there? Kombucha gate. So they measured the alcohol levels using their methods that date back to the 1920s that may or may not be very accurate. And they said, you know, this kombucha exceeds the legal limit for a non-alcoholic drink, which is 0.5%. So Mm -hmm. anything above 0.5% is officially an alcoholic beverage and is subject to the full regulations of an alcoholic beverage. Some of the kombucha on the shelf was in excess of 0.5%. And so a lot of stores pulled it all off the shelves and it took many months for a lot of these kombucha companies to get back on track. And they reformulated it in such a way that it was never going to be able to exceed 0.5%. Now, you know, that sounds like a reasonable thing. However, the reformulation means that some of the more difficult to quantify health benefits of kombucha might have been lost. So if you make your own kombucha, then you're making the traditional kombucha that, you know, we've had around for a couple thousand years, maybe. And if you buy most of the commercial kombucha, you're getting something a little different. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. The alcohol content, I have opinions about alcohol and fermented drinks, which I can share if you like. Yeah, well, that was going to be one of my questions for you is how much alcohol is in here? The answer is I don't really know. Probably, you know, most kombucha that you would make, I doubt you're going to get more than 1%. Mm -hmm. So that means you would have to drink a lot of them to get the effect of, say, a glass of wine. Until maybe 100 years ago, the alcohol and fermented drinks really didn't matter. The only reason that people are concerned, and when I say fermented drinks, I include things like wine and beer and apple cider, hard apple cider. You know, they have alcohol in them. People get drunk. It's complicated, but I think it's not at all the same as spirits, like liquor. Uh Nowadays, we drive these two-ton steel beasts at 100 feet a second, and that doesn't mix at all with alcohol, as we know. And so alcohol content, a little more of an issue, but I do think that there is some evidence that small amounts of alcohol are actually beneficial for the nervous system, the cardiovascular system. And again, I'm not a doctor, but I think at different phases in pregnancy, even consumption of alcohol may or may not be a big deal. Let's not go there. (laughs) Different cultures have different taboos around it, I'll say. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to make any categorical statements about it. But I think if I had to say overall, I think we as a society worrying about whether kombucha is 0.5% or 0.7% is probably not the biggest problem we have. I can probably safely say that. How would one go about learning how to make their own kombucha at home? Well, you could buy either of my books. Yeah. And the one we're talking about today is Kombucha, Kafir and Beyond. 
a link will be available on our show notes page if you want to jump in and learn a lot more. There's a beautiful book, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. We had fun writing this book. A lot of experimenting and research. Cool. So how does one go about making kombucha? The details of making kombucha are in my books. They're in many other people's books. And they're also available in many forms on the internet for free if what you want to make is kombucha. Give me the steps. First, you brew some tea, black tea, green tea, or a combination. I think most people these days are using a combination. You could use any other tea derived from the tea plant, like oolong tea or white tea. What you want to steer away from is like herbal tea, which isn't from the tea plant, and also tea with spices and oils in it, like Earl Grey tea has bergamot. Is it bergamot or bergamot? Good question. I'll look it up later. Bergamot, let's call it, has some antimicrobial properties and antimicrobial can mess with the balance of your ferment. So make some tea, add sugar in a particular ratio, Mm -hmm. and then add a bit of your old kombucha to it, your existing batch. And then usually you want to take the floating squid that I mentioned earlier and put that in with your new batch also. They're called SCOBIES, are they not? The SCOBY, yes. I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. So SCOBY is an acronym that stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. Oh. Or something like that. Wow. As far as I'm concerned, the whole thing is a SCOBY because there's bacteria and yeast in the liquid as well. Mm-hmm. But typically the floaty thing is called a SCOBY. To keep things simple, you know, I'll call it a SCOBY. I think that there's at least to some confusion because people think that all of the bacteria and yeast live in the floaty thing, in the pellicle. Right. Actually, you know, there's bacteria and yeast throughout the whole thing. I think of the floaty more like a coral reef that they make their home in. So the thing you see is just a home for them. And where does one get one of these at if you don't have one? You know, one of the best ways to get one is if you have a friend already who makes kombucha, you can get them to give you part of theirs because every time you make a new batch, the thing grows a new layer. If you can get one from a friend, that's great. And then if for some reason they stop making kombucha for a while and then they want to come back to it, then you can return the favor or you can spread the love. And that way you have kombucha, other kombucha makers around you in your community who can serve as backup if you need a new SCOBY. Excellent. You can also buy them on the internet. There are many fine sources of gobies. My friend Kombucha Mama is the best known and excellent source. You can also sometimes get them for free, like on Craigslist or on right. Reddit. There's a Reddit board called Find a Scoby that's specifically for people giving each other scobies. Oh, wow. It's like personal ads in search of scoby. Great. We have tea. We add some kombucha and a scoby. Then what happens next? Over the course of the next week or two or however long you leave it, the sugar in the tea is transformed into a bunch of different acids. Acetic acid and lactic acid are the biggest ones, but there are a lot of other ones, many of which we maybe don't even know about, which have seem to have health benefits that are very hard to quantify, but they're easy to see in a lot of cases. And it seems like the caffeine gets from the tea also gets transformed. I have some friends with a kombucha production company and they measured the caffeine after the fermentation. It was something like 5%. It was when they started and the flavors change when you ferment it over the next week or two. The general trend is that yeast eat the sugar and convert it to alcohol and then at the same time bacteria eat the alcohol, transform it to acid. Depending on the surface area you have exposed, depending on the temperature, depending on the particular kombucha you started with, 
this, depending on what's in the air, where you are, this will happen at a different pace or it'll have a different balance of everything. Cool. So once the few weeks have passed, then we take the scoby off the top and drink it? You can definitely drink it. What I generally do these days is I will put the finished kombucha into bottles along with a little bit of fruit and maybe some spices. And then I'll screw a cap on tight. And what that will do is a few things. First of all, there'll be flavor from whatever I add, you know, like a strawberry or some ginger. But second of all, screwing the cap on tight means that any carbon dioxide generated from the fermentation will stay in the kombucha. And so that is a way to carbonate it in the bottle so that what you get is carbonated like a lot of the commercial kombuchas. And that just makes it more fun. Cool. So looking at your book, there's kombucha, there's june, there's kefir. What are these different things? June is a cousin of kombucha. And with kombucha, you make the base, as I mentioned, is tea with sugar in it. With June, you start with tea with honey in it. So it's similar to kombucha, has a slightly lighter flavor. It ferments a little more quickly because the table sugar they use in kombucha is a disaccharide, which means it's like a two chain sugar. It's two units long. Uh Honey has mostly one unit sugars. And so it takes less time for the microbes to do their work on it. June is harder to find in the store by an order of magnitude. And it's also more expensive to make at home since high quality honey isn't cheap. When I get my beehives, I will likely be making June. Oh, nice. I encourage anyone who's interested to try making it. It's just kombucha is a little easier to make. So and it sounds to me like what there is for us to do here is experiment away, have fun, and make some kombucha. That's my hope. The A large part of what attracts me to fermenting is the fun and the experiment aspect. You're experimenting in your kitchen with some pretty cheap ingredients. And if something goes wrong, you'll know it. And it's surprisingly hard to poison yourself with fermentation, unlike various other cooking experiments you could do. So there's nothing to worry about here from a health perspective. There really isn't. There are some people for whom fermented foods are not ideal for one reason or another, but the same can be said of every other food. Well, that's just really experimenting to see what works for you and what doesn't. Yes, that's a great point, Greg. I think a lot of us have been disconnected from how we feel when we eat something because so much of what we eat is produced by someone else under unknown circumstances. And so we don't really know what it was that made us feel awful yesterday. Right. It's something we ate, but we didn't make it, so we don't even know what it was. Making your own food can help you become aware of what works for you and what doesn't, I think. So you had fun making this book. It's a beautiful book, lots of great pictures. It looks like there's lots of great data. Tell me about the book a little bit. Kombucha, Kafir, and Beyond. I was contacted by a woman named Raquel, who became the co-author, and we had a friend in common, and she found me through our mutual friend, and Raquel invited me to come to Mexico and do a fermenting workshop in her cooking school she had down there. So I did that, and Raquel is and was a fermenter very much in her own right. And we started talking about fermenting and fermented drinks and we kept in touch. And pretty soon it became clear that we had some work to do together and we did it. And I think we produced a book that benefited from having both of our perspectives, both of our cultures in it. She told me about some traditional Mexican fermented drinks and some fermented drinks from other parts of the world that I hadn't known about and certainly hadn't had experience making. And I was able to have a perspective that I think would appeal to U.S. audience. And the book is stronger for having both of our voices in it. And I have my new favorite fermented drink as a result of working with Raquel, which is something 
wine called Tepache. Oh, nice. Which is a, a pineapple wine that you make out of the husk of the pineapple and the core that are left over once you've eaten the mm-hmm. edible part. Nice. How's it taste? I love it. It ferments pretty quickly. It's done in somewhere between three and seven days. It's a very low alcohol wine, maybe 2% or so. It tastes like pineapple. It tastes like wine. It tastes like vinegar. You can bottle it and let it sit and ferment fully. And then it tastes almost like a mild champagne. You can drink it when it's very young, in which case it's like pineapple soda, sort of. You can put it in cocktails if that's what you want to do. It's great fun. And you make it, comes practically for free because you make it out of the part of the pineapple you're going to throw away. Right. How nice is that? So can you give our listeners just a little bit of advice, your thoughts on making kombucha? Sure. I would say first, you know, be realistic about how much kombucha you drink. And if you drink like one or two bottles a week, then if you're able to get kombucha in the store, then there's some amount of time investment in making your own kombucha. I guess be realistic about whether it's going to be worth your time and whether you're going to keep doing it. Because if you start and then you stop, then you're going to have some equipment and some stuff to clean up. But if you decide that it's something you want to do and it'll be fun for you, then get a SCOBY, get a jar. I actually have a shopping list for making kombucha on the website is the Kombucha Kafir and Beyond website. Mm -hmm. There's a resources page and there are links. If you want to buy it all on Amazon, you can just click through all these links. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show again today, Alex. Oh, you're very welcome, Greg. So how can our listeners find you? What's your website? As I mentioned, kombuchakafirandbeyond.com will get you to the site specific to the book. Also, feedmelikeyoumeanit.com will get you to my general website. And if you email Alex at either of those, you will find me by email. Excellent. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash feed me too. And if you'd like to hear more from Alex, you can find his other podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash feed me like you mean it. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, we want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is, I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy at the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. 
Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWANTTOGARDEN.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWANTTOGARDEN.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.